Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that I am looking for 50 people with Hashimoto's. If you have been diagnosed in the last 10 years and you feel lost or confused about exactly what to do, then I want to invite you to join me for a free training call on Thursday, May 16th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, where I will show you how to support your thyroid for your thyroid type and your specific Hashimoto's triggers. You will also find out how to lower your thyroid antibodies and how to get to the bottom of all of your thyroid symptoms, the weight gain, the fatigue, the brain fog, the inflammation, the hair loss. Please go to inatoppler.com slash Zoom call to register, and I will send you all of the call details. I only have room for 50 people, so please be sure that you register at inatoppler.com slash Zoom call and get your spot right now. Meet Jenny. She is 37, and she's been on the birth control pill for 20 years. She originally went on it when she was in high school for irregular and very heavy periods. She recently got married, though, and wanted to start a family, so she got off the pill. However, when she did, she started experiencing fatigue, insomnia, hair loss, and acne, and her period did not start back up the following month. She saw her gynecologist, who said that her hormones were likely off and to give it six months, at which point her period should come back. She was hesitant, but she waited and dealt with the symptoms. About three months later, her period came, and it reminded her of what happened back in high school. It was heavy and really painful. She thought the next month would be better, but it didn't come on time again. It wasn't until 45 days later that she got it the next month, and that one really was not that much better. And her doctors did not have any other solutions for her. She started to research and saw that many of her symptoms were also similar to those of hypothyroidism, but both her gynecologist and her primary kept saying her thyroid was just fine. She knew something was off and she didn't want to take no for an answer, which is when she came to see me. We ran lots of labs and saw that while her TSH was completely normal, her free hormones were off. Was it something the pill was affecting? Or was it her thyroid? Or was it both? I knew exactly where to look to get to the bottom of her health mystery. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know, because that was me, before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about all of the issues Jenny was having after being on the birth control pill for so many years and then trying to come off. Join me on the show today to talk much more about this is Emily Sadri. Emily is a board-certified women's health nurse practitioner and certified nurse practitioner. She runs a functional medicine practice for women in Cleveland, Ohio, and has spent the last decade working with women and families. Her specialties include abnormal uterine bleeding, perimenopause and menopause, and fertility. And she's also a proud mom of four young kids. 
Emily, I don't know how you do everything. Um, I've had such a pleasure getting to know you over the last two years, and I'm so excited to have you on here. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much, Ina. It's such a pleasure to be here. It's such a great podcast, and I couldn't be happier. Oh, thank you. So we're talking about the birth control pill today, and you know it's something that is very popular, but it's also not something that has been used for that purpose, especially more recently. More often these days, I hear women say that they are on it because their periods are off or because they're having issues with something else. And, you know, there's so many different things that the birth control pill is prescribed for. Can you talk a little bit about what are some of these issues? Yeah, it's interesting because I think um, the average person might not realize that now it is true that the birth control pill was designed to be um, a mode of family planning is now really used um, as kind of a catch-all for hormonal issues um, and the treatment of choice for many um, traditional practitioners. Use starts frequently in adolescence. Um, a lot of the common complaints of young women, young uh, females that are coming to their provider are that they have heavy or painful periods, acne, you know, irregular bleeding, which is really common, especially in the first sort of five to seven years of a cycling woman's life. And the birth control pill will regulate some of those things, but it doesn't necessarily fix them. So that's where we get into some trouble. So let's talk a little bit about why the birth control pill will regulate that if someone has an irregular cycle or if, let's say, they have a very heavy cycle or um, a lot of cramps, you know, and I think in adolescence, especially, you know, if someone's in a lot of pain, you know, obviously the parents, the doctors, they want to help to alleviate that. But why and how does the birth control pill help with that? You know, I think we should start with a, a little basic anatomy lesson in physiology. Essentially, when a woman, a young woman starts to get her cycle, and even in the years before, right, the average age um, for onset of menses is 11. And prior to that, the woman, the young woman's, you know, pituitary gland um, and hypothalamus in her brain are starting to send out little signals to her ovaries, right? We call this the HPO axis, the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis. It's like a feedback loop. So the hypothalamus talks to the anterior pituitary, the anterior pituitary gland sends out some um, hormones to stimulate the ovaries to start to relieve, release estrogen. And so that estrogen is is kind of just getting organized and being released in little bursts over the years leading up to a young girl's first cycle and then even in the first years that she starts to menstruate. So estrogen, you know, builds up the uterine lining. It starts to thicken the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus. And the hormones from the anterior pituitary stimulate the release of a follicle from the ovary, um, a follicle meaning an egg. And so when that first follicle is released, that will happen prior to the first bleed because the follicle is released and there's a lining around the follicle called the corpus luteum, and that actually releases progesterone. Progesterone sort of stabilizes that thickened endometrium, and then when that egg is not fertilized, the body picks up on that, and then the endometrium sheds, and that is when you get a menses. So it's sort of this very beautiful, like, rise and fall of hormones. It kind of works in a cycle. Everything is responding to something else, you know, just like lots of different systems in the body. It's a feedback loop. But in the first few years that that's happening, it's often a little bit clunky, right? <laughs> so it's normal for um, young women, even, you know, all through sort of 
middle school and high school. And then especially if that young woman has sort of irregular sleep or maybe extra stress or, you know, people's lives are changing a lot when they're young and growing, right? So that that system is impacted by so many external factors that it's really common for young girls who start their cycles to maybe have one regular cycle and then to have a longer cycle that's 37 or 40 or 50 days and then a shorter cycle. Um, and so what happens when you give exogenous, meaning outside of the body, coming from outside of the body in the form of a pill, hormones, is that that feedback loop is interrupted. And so the pituitary hormones, the hypothalamus, all the brain hormones that are talking to the ovaries, they get this message that, oh, like there's circulating estrogen right now. There's circulating progesterone. So we, we don't need to stimulate the ovary to then release endogenous from inside the body hormones. And so it kind of quiets that whole system. And so you're giving this this pack of pills and a traditional pack of birth control pills would be three weeks of active pills. And they're usually, so your traditional pill is usually a combination of estrogen and progestin, which is a synthetic version of progesterone. And the body perceives those like they're similar to your endogenous hormones. And so it just sort of turns down the whole system. It stops that feedback loop. So your ovary is no longer producing estrogen or it's producing very minimal. And the uterus, the endometrium, that lining is responding to the hormones in the pills. And so it's sort of building up a little mini lining, especially if it's a sort of moderate to higher dose estrogen pill. Really low dose ones won't build up the uterine lining as much. And then the fourth week, if you're familiar with your pill pack, you always remember you have those sugar pills or um, if you ever took birth control in the past or those inactive pills, that week has no hormones. And so the body, the uterine lining especially, senses that removal of hormones. And in response, it releases the uterine lining, right? And then you start that new pill pack again the following week. So essentially, as you're saying, it overrides what your own body is doing, a quiet that feedback loop and then just takes over with the synthetic hormones, correct? Exactly. So I always tell people it doesn't really regulate your periods. It just causes you to have a withdrawal bleed. There's a difference, right? Because a period implies that that whole cycle is happening and that there's communication between the brain and the ovaries, that there's a release of a follicle, that you have a uterine lining that's prepped for that follicle, and then that you have a period. So I I like to differentiate between a period and a withdrawal bleed. So when you're on synthetic hormones, that it's a withdrawal bleed from the hormones and not really a period. I'm so glad you're saying that. And I think this is such a clear and concise way to explain that because I think when most people think about having an irregular cycle or having certain issues with their periods, they think, oh, here it is. I'm on the pill. It fixed it, right? And now I have this regular period, but really, like you're saying, it's actually not a period. You're just having a withdrawal bleed. It's it's fake, right? Correct. Yeah, exactly. And so, and that might seem fine, but the issue is what's actually going on and was there something that was happening before we came in and we sort of transposed this artificial sort of environment with exogenous hormones that that's making us now miss what was what was going on like what what was happening in that hpo access that communication between the brain and the ovaries that was maybe off causing irregular cycles causing acne at certain times of the cycle just because it's turned off doesn't mean that the problem is gone yeah it's gone for the time 
time being, right? And for some people, it may be gone for 10 years, 15 years, or 20 years, depending on how long they're on. Right. And that's the issue is that it's really hard to tease out when women come off of the pill. And I think this is happening a little bit less now because people are using progestin-only methods, which is sort of a whole other topic. Um, And so we have a totally different set of sort of side effects um, and kind of coming off you know, hormones issue when you talk about different classes of birth control. But when people are coming off the pill, a lot of times they've been on it for so many years that we have no idea what's really going on. And so it's hard to say that what you're experiencing post pill is, is directly tied to having been on the pill for 20 years, or if it was because of what was happening 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, when you went on the pill that we just masked. Right, right. And that was exactly what was happening with Jenny. Um, All right. So I just want to go back for a second to what you were saying about the classes of pills, because I think this is important to talk about because there's a lot of confusion about this. You know, I think most people think birth control pill, you get estrogen, right? But there's a lot more to it. So can you talk about the types of pills that we have and how they work? Yeah. So the most common type of pill is a combined um, synthetic estrogen, ethanol estradiol is is the type of estrogen, and then a progestin. So these are synthetic estrogen and and progestin. And typical pills will have a steady dose starting from day one going through day 21. So it'll be three weeks of a continuous steady dose of those two hormones. So the issue with this is that in a natural cycle, your hormone levels are not going to be steady and consistent for 21 days, Mm -hmm. right? Right. They ebb and flow like a wave. So they start really low post period. You're at your lowest level or post, you know, at the sort of the day of first day of bleeding is when your hormones are actually lowest. Okay. And then they start to climb. They kind of um, increase in concert, you ovulate, and then you get this nice, robust kind of um, burst of progesterone that you get from that follicle. And you have a nice steady amount of um, progesterone for about seven to 10 days. And then that starts to steadily decline. This is why a lot of women experience symptoms in the seven days leading up to their bleeding, because you're having a decline in hormones. And then you go back to that really low state where you're at um, the lowest level on day one, two, and three of your cycle. Day one is first day of bleeding. So when you're giving exogenous hormones and you're giving a consistent level of hormones, you can imagine that that might feel different to the body. Right. And I think one of the amazing things about being a woman is that you get to have a cyclical experience of life that you feel different during different times of the cycle. And especially if you can become in tune with that, can be a really rich way to experience life differently. Oh, I love how you put that. Well, it's really true. I mean, I think I'm always thinking about like, why is it like this? You know, I mean, like things were not designed by accident, right? Yeah. And we have this unique ability in our cycling years, which is not, which is a, a big portion of our life, but it's really not all of it, right? You have all those postmenopausal years where you're not cycling. And so it's a different experience. But during that cycling time, it's like a lot of people think that sort of during that time when hormones are falling and then during the time when the the lowest amount that there's sort of an inward turning and more introspection, an ability to be more discerning and kind of um, see life from a different perspective. And then we have this time around ovulation where we get this nice big burst of hormones. We're feeling really passionate and energetic and we might have um, a lot of creativity during that time or a lot of um, sort of impetus to 
like do a lot of projects and be really productive. And so it's, if you're in tune with that, what a gift is that? Because maybe you schedule something where, you know, you have to be really um, productive and write a, write a big sort of pop paper, prepare a podcast, you know, whatever you're doing yeah. during that time of your cycle, when you know that that's going to feel good. And likewise, maybe you wouldn't, you know, host an open house in your home on day 27 of your cycle, right? Which is right before you're about to have your bleed because you're just going to feel, it's going to feel different. And so I think that it would be really lovely if we would inform young women of the gift in that and sort of the opportunity in that when they're young so that they can see that as, as a positive thing and as a way to know themselves and to be more in tune with how they interact with the world throughout the month, instead of just pathologizing all of the different ways that we feel and saying like, you know, I hate the term like, well, she's just hormonal. Like, what does that even mean? Oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, mm-hmm. Because our hormones are really there to inform us and to color our experience of the world. And so if we're taking that away, I think that we, we miss a lot of opportunities to tap into our potential, our intuition, our instincts, um, our creativity, um, and just to celebrate the fact that we're not, a, we're not at a steady state all the time. We're not going to have the same ideas all the time. We're not going to interact with the world the same all the time. And that's really cool, you know. Um, the other, the other half of our human species doesn't have that. Yeah, no, that is really cool, and I think that's such a wonderful way to think about it. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about just teaching young women, especially as they get started on the process about this, you know, and also at the same time working on balancing things, right, so that people aren't feeling like, okay, well, this part of my cycle is just so bad. It's hard for me to enjoy it because I feel so bad, right? Because that's not something, it doesn't have to be that way. And as we're going to get more into it today, you know, the birth control isn't the only answer to that. Correct. Yeah. So you can see why having that steady state of exogenous hormones is going to, it will often lead to things like increased mood swings or depression or just kind of having a little bit of lacklusterness um, and lower libido. These are off, these are really common reported and, um, you know, reported in the studies side effects that women experience on the pill. And um, so even though it may make some things make pain or bleeding quality um, make will sort of dampen those things, it's also going to kind of flatten everything else, flatten a woman's experience in many ways. And that's a really, really good way of looking at it. Now with the other pills, so we talked about the synthetic estrogen and progestin. Now I know there's also the phasic pills where it is estrogen and progestin, but the estrogen is slightly higher with each week. How do those work? That will often be used if someone is needing an increased amount of estrogen to prevent breakthrough bleeding. Everyone will have a different threshold for how much estrogen they need to prevent the endometrium from being kind of unstable and shedding. And so there's two ways to approach that. One, there's with that aphasic approach, which would in theory be kind of mirroring um, a natural experience of how estrogen levels will increase throughout the cycle. Um, And then there's also just higher dose birth control pills. So one of the solutions that um, a provider will often offer someone if they're having breakthrough bleeding is let's just increase the dose of hormones um, because that is more likely to stabilize the endometrium and decrease breakthrough bleeding. There's also an approach that people have probably heard of. This was popular for a long time, which is just to skip that inactive week to continue the high dose hormones um, so that there's no, no withdrawal bleed at all. 
um, and you just continue, like there isn't even a cycle. It's just a steady state of hormones to suppress bleeding altogether. What are your thoughts there? So, you know, it's it's two-sided, right? Because there are um, there are people with serious health conditions. Um, even, even interestingly, you probably know about this, that, like people who have serious autoimmune diseases sometimes benefit from using these um, continuous hormones because the fluctuations in hormones can be triggering for flare-ups. And so I can see the clinical utility in that approach, but I think that we really miss an opportunity to explore the deeper issues, right? Which is why I love functional medicine so much because it says, hey, like, yes, this might work in terms of suppressing your symptoms and reducing your flare, but why? And it's such an amazing clue, even, even a way to kind of test or diagnose. It's like diagnostic in a way. If we do this, then we get this result. Well, that's really interesting because what's going on with your hormones what you know what are your endogenous fluctuations and why are they so big why are they so dysregulated can we fix that instead of just masking because again not only does the masking not fix the root cause but then there's also all the side effects and problems and like the and the sort of decompensation of different body systems that happens with prolonged use of birth control now you also mentioned progestin only birth control can you talk a little bit about that Progestin-only birth control is really popular for use postpartum for a couple of reasons. One, um, immediately postpartum, you don't ever want to use any kind of estrogen products on women because they already have such high circulating levels of estrogen. And estrogen dramatically increases a woman's risk for um, venous thromboembolism, so having a blood clot. And so, I mean, the risk and the rate of of thromboembolism with the use of estrogen-containing birth control pills is three to five fold higher than the general population in general, but that risk increases even more for women postpartum. So the progestin-only pill was um, is widely used for women who have just had a baby and for women who have other risk factors that make estrogen not um, a good choice for them because of other health issues or um, increased risk of having blood clots. So the progestin-only birth control pill works a little bit differently in that it doesn't always fully suppress ovulation. It often does, but we're a little unclear. Like we think sometimes people ovulate. The main reason, the the main mechanism of action, how it works is that it really suppresses the development of the uterine lining. So over the course of your cycle, your estrogen develops the endometrium. It makes it thick and kind of um, lush and really rich. And it's nourished, has lots of blood flow. And it's um, so it's perfect for an egg to implant. And that's how pregnancy happens, right? Usually the egg is in the fallopian tube, a sperm comes up, fertilization actually happens in the fallopian tube. And then by the time you've got this little follicle that's that's fertilized, it's been a few days, it gets to the endometrium and then it implants into that nice, thick, lush, juicy lining. And so the progestin-only pill really prevents that lining from ever getting thick. So even if you potentially had, you know, uh, an egg that got there, it wouldn't be able to implant. So pregnancy wouldn't be able to occur. So some of the side effects with that are that some irregular spotting, because as you can imagine, if it's sort of disrupting that thickening of the endometrium, if a little estrogen gets through, it may sort of start to build up, but then not stick. So people will often have like um, sort of persistent spotting with that. Um, But interestingly, with the progestin-only pill, there's higher rates of depression and mood and mood sort of changes and abnormalities. And I, you know, could theorize on why that is. I don't think anybody's really fully identified that. But to me, that's really problematic because it is the 
most commonly prescribed pill post-birth and postpartum depression is an epidemic in our country and in the world that I, I get very nervous and kind of I'm kind of uncomfortable with the fact that we use not just a progestin-only pill, but other progestin-only methods like the Mirena IUD or even other um, progestin-containing IUDs or the depot shot, which is highly associated with a risk for depression. So that's super interesting. And I would just caution people, you know, before making that choice to, especially if you have a history of, of mood disorders, to think about that. Yeah, no, that's a really, really good point because it sounds like the more kind of regular pills, right? The estrogen and progestin pills, you know, they are going to either stop or, well, I'm assuming they're probably stopping ovulation, right? Because of the hormones. So someone's not ovulating versus the progestin only pills, they're not stopping ovulation, but they're just making the lining not available. So even if you ovulate, right, the egg's not going to implant. Similarly to, it sounds like how, um, IUDs work, right? Because you're still ovulating with those. It's just, you have something in your uterus and it can't implant because of that. Correct. Yep. In a sense then with a more traditional, you know, estrogen progestin pill, I think it kind of creates a little bit more of an estrogen dominance and not to say that someone's estrogen is necessarily too high, but it sounds like the estrogen could in relativity be higher than progesterone creating an estrogen dominance versus with these other ones, there's no estrogen and if it's progestin only, it raises your progesterone more than what your natural one would be. So it essentially creates a progesterone dominance. And you know, having progesterone that's higher is going to affect a lot of things. It's going to be different than estrogen dominance, but it's going to come with its own set of symptoms, right? So that's where some of that is coming from. It sounds like. Yep, exactly. And you know, and it's so hard because a lot of this stuff hasn't been really like sussed out, and so we're just we're guessing, and we're also piecing together women's experiences and what they report as the primary side effects. So maybe it would be a good time to list what are the most common side effects yes. and what are things that we understand as well-documented um, sort of effects from prolonged use of birth control or even short-term use. Yeah. And yes, if you could talk about those and also if you feel like there are more effects the longer someone has been on, like in Jenny's case, for example, she was on for 20 years. Yeah. And that's so hard because, right, I mean, we also know that for women who are just um, endogenous hormone cyclers, people who haven't been on any kind of birth control, that hormone production and um, hormone quality and sort of the orchestration of that HPO access, um, the precision of that changes even starting at age 25, starts to decline a little bit and then dramatically at age 35. So it becomes really hard to tease out what's going on with women who never had an HPO access that really got into a rhythm because they went on the pill so young, say age 16, yeah. and then they're on it until age 34 or 36. And so they've really missed that opportunity in their lifetime to have that pathway kind of become um, rehearsed and regular. And so we're also dealing with just endogenous decrease in in hormone secretion and potentially um, an adrenal system that's kind of tired. So that's also going to impact um, the quality and sort of robustness um, and organization of our hormones. Yeah. So let me quickly just go over you know, the most commonly reported um, symptoms with combined hormonal contraceptive use. So these are really well documented. Um, headaches is very common. Um, people often believe that this is due to the, a drop in estrogen. And often the, the sort of solution is to just increase the dose of estrogen in the pill. 
And actually, people who have migraine headaches with a history of aura, where they have those um, kind of visual changes or um, oral auditory changes, are 100% contraindicated from using um, estrogen methods of birth control because of the risk factor there for um, thromboembolism. Spotting is very common, sore breasts, um, constipation, and sort of digestive changes, bloating, more frequent yeast infections. And we believe that that has to do with the higher dose of estrogen and how that is um, has an affinity for yeast and yeast like to feed off of that estrogen. Um, likewise, changes to the gut microbiome, especially gut permeability. That's well documented that um, estrogen opens up those gap junctions in the single cell layer lining the gut. And um, we, there's all kinds of things that are sort of spill off effects from that and lots and lots of theories about how that kind of maybe plays a role in increased rates of Hashimoto's and other autoimmune diseases post-pill use. When, one quick question about that. So we'll go to the next one. So with intestinal permeability and estrogen, do you think that is because it's synthetic estrogen and it acts slightly different in the body than your own bioidentical natural estrogen? Or do you think it has to do more with the fact that it's more estrogen and it creates this dominance of estrogen? Mm, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think that you're talking about a population of people that probably have some impairment um, in sort of detoxification and gut function already. And you're talking about a subset of women who are starting pills in adolescence and maybe don't have optimal diets either. So they're, you know, maybe eating a diet rich in um, refined carbohydrates, you know, without a, enough fiber. And so their transit time in their colon is slower anyways. And so then you've got this extra compounded factor of the fact that they're, they have circulating estrogen just kind of sitting there for longer. It's, I think it's all of those things. Um, but we, we know that any kind of estrogen, be it endogenous or synthetic, if you literally drop it into the gut, you see an immediate opening of those of those gut junctions. And so one could ima one would imagine that if you have a continuous steady state of that synthetic hormone plus a sort of susceptible host, a person that has slow transit time, poor diet, all these other factors that are going to contribute to intestinal barrier issues, that it's going to compound that problem. Um, and then nutrient deficiencies is a really big issue. This is well documented in the literature. You do a PubMed search and you'll see, you know, 200 articles on the documented um, impact of birth control on nutrient deficiencies, specifically vitamin C, vitamin E, B vitamins, B2, B6, B12, folic acid, which interestingly enough is so important for conception. And we really have to make sure that women have good folic acid stores before conceiving. Um, and, you know, it's it's not uncommon for women to be on the birth control pill and then spontaneously get pregnant immediately after. And that becomes a really big concern when you're thinking about um, do they have good folic acid stores and how long were they on the birth control um, pill prior to conception. So um, I think it's really imperative that everybody who is on the pill be on also a, a high-quality prenatal vitamin with um, an absorbable form of folate. Um, magnesium and selenium are also uh, and zinc on that list of documented um, nutrients that get depleted on the birth control pill. 
Yeah. And the longer someone's been on, obviously the more potential for this depletion. So that's really, really important to be aware of. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure what the mechanism of action is that that by which that nutrient depletion occurs, because it is sick when they control for groups of women with like similar lifestyles and diet and all those things, it really is significant between the pill users and non-pill users. So, I mean, I'm sure it impairs absorption to some extent, um, but I wonder if there's other sort of layers in, in cellular metabi- metabolism or if it just increase, increases also maybe the rate of use of some of those vitamins um, and nutrients. But in either case, it's concerning. Well, I'm thinking one mechanism maybe, at least for the zinc and the selenium, can be copper. Mm-hmm. I often see higher levels of copper pe- for, with people who are on birth control and not specifically even people who are on a copper IUD. That I don't always see a correlation, but it's you know oral birth control pills. You know, I think, and again, there's probably a lot of different opinions, but the way that I I learned it and sort of my opinion here is that I think when estrogen is higher, you tend to have higher levels of copper because copper and estrogen tend to go together versus zinc and progesterone tend to go together more. And so if estrogen is higher, right, and we have higher levels of copper in the body, copper is going to be antagonistic to zinc. We talk a lot about this, especially more recently over the last two years with the pandemic, so many people are taking zinc. And then we say, hey, you know, zinc can push out copper. You have to take copper, but it goes the other way too. If people have higher copper, it'll push out your zinc and also selenium because those have an antagonistic relationship. So that possibly could be something. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Some other side effects are weight gain. That's actually most common with the progestin-only methods. Perfect for postpartum, huh? Right, yeah. And it's interesting because when the body senses really high levels of circulating progesterone, that is actually the most similar state to a a pregnancy mimicry. So you'll hear people say like, oh, well, your body thinks it's pregnant when it's on the pill. And that, I mean, in some ways um, could have some validity, but it's actually more true with um, high-dose progesterone methods because progesterone really has an affinity for storing fat, which is useful in pregnancy because you want to store fat in breast tissue and have, you know, good fat stores for when you're breastfeeding. Um, but it's not as helpful for people who are not pregnant. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't also go well with depression. Right. No, for sure. For sure. And I'm thinking also that connection with, you know, in pregnancy, especially in, you know, week 17 to 35 or somewhere in, you know, in that we almost become more insulin resistance because of everything that's happening and the hormone changes. And so I'm wondering if the higher progesterone can affect that too. And so then that creates potential metabolic issues on top of just the weight gain itself. No, absolutely. And actually metabolic issues all by themselves with even controlled for with weight gain um, is an issue with birth control use. So we see a rise in fasting insulin, a rise in triglyceride levels, and also um, an increase in the amount of sex hormone binding globulin by the liver, which then also binds testosterone, making it inactive in the body, which leads to my next favorite side effect of the birth control, which is low libido. I hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people don't realize that you know they're they're losing the benefit of testosterone which is you know a lovely wonderful wonderful hormone for women and men and important um, especially in the years when you want to be enjoying like lovely you know satisfying love making with your partner that it's really important and when it goes away you feel that and is it that because the estrogen and progesterone are more dominant it's just because more so like uh, women not on the pill will have a, an shbg so sex hormone binding globulin level of about 20 to 30 
And then I'll see women on the pill with a sex hormone binding globulin level about 200 to 300. I've even seen it as high as 500. And so when you have that much sex hormone binding globulin circulating, the, 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 it will bind up testosterone. And so I see testosterone levels then in women, even post pill. So there's, it doesn't actually go away. That increased level of sex hormone binding globulin can take a really long time to reverse. And I'll see post pill, even months or years post pill, that they still have a high circulating level of SHBG and a subsequent low level of testosterone. And I'll see healthy 32-year-old women with a testosterone level similar to my postmenopausal women. Wow. That's really interesting. I just wanted to explain on for a second in case some people listening to this may not be familiar. So sex hormone binding globulin, what it does is it essentially binds up sex hormones. And if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is if someone's on the pill, it, their sex hormone binding globulin raises it. And I'm assuming it's probably because there is higher hormones circulating. So that sex hormone binding globulin is up to bind in case there's too much, right? Yep. And then because your own testosterone is also a hormone, while you have more sex binding globulin, it's saying, oh, look, there's testosterone. Let me grab it too while I'm at it, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay. And then if you and then you layer that on top of a gut that's functioning differently under the influence of estrogen and a little bit of progesterone, but primarily estrogen, where a couple of things are happening. You maybe have more affinity and more likelihood of having dysbiosis. You have a, a bacterial imbalance that um, is worsening under the influence of hormones. And one of the side effects of that is that you might have a change in sort of enzymes and bacterial metabolism. So you're going to have a different process by which you're reabsorbing hormones and not excreting them properly. So you may that may contribute to an estrogen-dominant picture. So you've got like, it's twofold, right? So then you're recirculating this other estrogen and then you've got that sort of maybe also recirculating all of that other stuff that the liver is putting off, like your sex hormone binding globulin, you're not getting it out. Yeah. So it's like a double whammy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, what a difference though, you know, when you're saying you're seeing 20 to 30 in women not on the pill and as high as 500 in those on the pill, I mean, that's a huge, huge difference. A huge difference. And there is, there are some studies that show that your sex hormone binding globulin actually never fully recovers and goes back down to the level that it was at before the pill, once you've taken it. It's almost like the body's primed and ready. Like, all right, where's the hormones? Where are they? I'm ready. Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah, you probably see that in lots of body systems, right? That like it's the same thing similar with like autoimmunity, right? Like once the body starts to make autoantibodies, it's like it doesn't, it can calm down, but it doesn't know how to fully turn it off. Yeah. And that's where the balancing really comes in, right? It's to teach that immune system, hey, like not everything is bad. Like you can rest. It's okay. Calm down, you know, to help it to not be so extra vigilant, but yeah, absolutely. Totally. And the other, the other last thing that changes in terms of lab values that I see is that CRP goes up on the birth control pill. Interesting. Yeah. And so inflammatory markers really change in, you know, it's interesting because we see a decrease in autoimmune symptoms often on the pill, especially with continuous use. And, but we see an increase in CRP. So it's like there's some inflammatory markers are going up and some are kind of um, kept at bay, but there's definitely a little bit of a, of a dysregulation there. It's really, really interesting. Yeah. And then from, you know, speaking of autoimmunity and thyroid, I was just talking about this to a few clients and I'm doing a module in my course that I'm finishing up right now on this as well, that with estrogen and, you know, of course it doesn't have to be just the pill. It could be any excess estrogen, but typically when it, when it comes from a pill, that's part of the issue. We actually tend to see lower circulating free hormones and oftentimes, you know, that's missed and people can be having hypothyroid symptoms 
And, you know, everything seems okay. Their TSH is fine. Their total T4 and T3 is fine, but their free hormones, which are the hormones that are actually going to the cells are low. And it's because of that sex hormone binding globulin and that is affecting um, how they're utilizing those free hormones. So it's a really interesting connection. Yeah. And hormones are not, you know, we, we hear the word hormone and we think like sex and periods, but hormones are chemical messengers for all kinds of processes in the body. And so when you mess with something that modulates all of those processes, it makes sense that the side effects um, of using these pills are really systemic and not just isolated to sex and periods. Yeah, for sure. Now, what about issues post-pill? You know, these symptoms that we were talking about are symptoms people can be getting when they first get on the pill or over time when they're on it. But what about when they try to get off? I mean, there are some people who are lucky and they get off and they're okay, but there's a lot of different side effects that we see, like in Jenny's case. What have you noticed? So I, I usually notice that people will come to me four to six months after coming off the pill that for some reason, that's a point when they start to see a resurgence of symptoms. And, you know, that may be because, um, you know, immediately when you withdraw hormones from like using exogenous hormones, so as soon as you take away that estrogen and progesterone, oftentimes the ovaries kind of get a jolt and you get a surge of hormones from your hypothalamus and anterior pituitary telling your ovary to ovulate and telling you to cycle. And then like that, that trigger kind of goes away, right? And so they may have one normal cycle and then their cycle might disappear. I see a lot of symptoms of low hormone production, dysregulated hormones, so really irregular, irregular cycles that are either really prolonged or with breakthrough bleeding. I see a lot of symptoms of nutrient depletion, so hair loss, depression, um, brittle nails, um, just different mood swings, sleep abnormalities. It's oh, it's so cyclical because the de- the nutrients that are depleted also have a huge impact on our hormones. Like vitamin E is really important for regulating the menses, and you know the B vitamins play a large role in mood and energy and magnesium as well. So um, you'll see a lot of symptoms of, of just sort of dysregulated and low nutrient stores. And then gut issues. See a lot of gut issues with, I mean, it's pervasive for all women, as I'm sure you see in your practice. I see that those, that's like, they'll say, I didn't really have, I didn't really notice much of a problem when I was on the pill. And now I have all this bloating after eating and I have constipation. Or I have like, even there's even a correlation and there's studies out there that show that prolonged pill use is associated with a higher risk for inflammatory bowel disease, like Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Um, and I, I, I'm sure that some of that has to do with the changes to intestinal permeability, certainly the changes to the micro, microbiota, um, but potentially also some of these um, inflammatory pathways, since those are those, those are inflammatory mediated. So it, it really takes a whole system approach to... Um, healing the gut, rebalancing the microbiota, replenishing nutrient stores, and then supporting hormones. A lot of that starts with lifestyle. And sometimes we're going back to sort of lifestyle things that have been in place for many years for women, you know, um, sort of stress and sleep and burning the candle at both ends and eating at irregular times and having low blood sugar and going long times without meals. I mean, all these things that we were maybe masking some of the symptoms of those behaviors by using hormonal birth control. 
And now that we've taken it away, all of those things are showing up, plus sort of the issues that we just talked about. So for women, though, that have been on the birth control pill for a while and are listening to this and thinking, you know, this is really not good for me. I'm not maybe using it for actual birth control reasons. I want to try to get off. Or, you know, in the same token, for those um, girls who are maybe having some issues and they may be 16, 17, or 18, right? And they are thinking, okay, I want to balance this. So let me just do the pill because it's the easy thing. Um, You know, I think it's almost kind of the same in terms of balancing. What can people do? Because there are many things, right? You know, this is not the end of the rope. You know, we're talking about all these potential negative things with the pill, but we also obviously don't want to sound doom and gloom because there is so much that we can do. Is there a test that people can do first to see where they are? Or is it better to kind of do some, you know, more general balancing and then try to get off the pill? Or do they get off and then do balancing? How do you usually address that? I guess, why don't we talk about if someone's on the pill first, and then we can touch on if someone is not on and considering it and things that they can do. Well, I'll give, I'll just like choose an example. So if I have someone who comes to me and they're on the pill and this is really common, I'll have someone come to me and they're like 40 years old. They've been on the pill for maybe eight years since they had their children. They were on the pill before that. They feel pretty steady, but they also just don't want to be on it anymore. And they want to prepare to come off of it. In those cases, I, you know, if they've been doing really well on it and they're not having some of these overt symptoms, um, I would make sure that they've got those nutrients in check and replaced first, maybe right, you know, before coming off of it immediately. Um, And we would talk about all of the lifestyle things that would happen before coming off of it. And then especially afterwards, I mean, things as simple as restoring your circadian rhythms, getting adequate sleep when it's dark, sleeping between 10 PM and midnight when you get the most restorative sleep, um, eating regularly, um, you know, eating a diet that's rich in antioxidants and fiber and color and things that are going to help with excretion of hormone from the gut and help to promote liver health like beets and other cruciferous vegetables. So just optimizing all of that stuff first. And then if someone's doing all the right lifestyle things, we're replacing nutrients well. I mean, you can test a lot of simple nutrients like iron stores and B12 um, and things like that just in a simple blood test. Um, so I might just start with that. And then if someone's having persistent issues after a few months, you know, then I would do more complex hormone testing. And I, of course, love the Dutch test. So I will often do that. But I don't typically do that like within 30 days of coming off the pill because I don't think we're going to get a complete picture. I kind of like to see that washout happen a little bit, um, see what's going on with, you know, a couple months later, hopefully have them have at least one cycle on their own before we capture that post-ovulatory, you know, window of, of hormone sort of levels and picture. Now, do you ever test people while on the pill? I've heard of some practitioners doing that because they want to see what the pill is doing and what the pill is giving them. It's an interesting way. I haven't really done that, but I'm curious if that's something you've done before. Yeah. I mean, I do that, um, always do that when I'm using bioidentical hormones and doing bioidentical hormone replacement to make sure that, um, we are, we're getting good excretion and that we have good balance. Um, I, I suppose it would, you could do it. I mean, I think that we try to be judicious in our use of tests because it's costly. So maybe like just doing an isolated test to kind of see estrogen breakdown, um, and excretion. And, you know, you can even test testosterone, levels and sex hormone binding globulin and things like that and DHEA just by blood, you know, kind of simple tests. 
um, to see how those things are doing before doing the more complex hormone tests, which is probably the, the course that I would take. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And then what about for the young woman who is having imbalances and is considering the pill because she might be having acne or heavy periods or irregular cycles or mood swings and things like that? What would you say to her? So I would always recommend the basics first, right? It's like, let's always look at the basics. And I'm sure you you recommend the same. It's like, let's make sure that your thyroid is not off because I see this all the time. I swear I see people who have had thyroid issues since they were 13, 14. And so they were having like gaps in their thyroid, in their period because hypothyroid is a major driver of amenorrhea um, or prolonged cycles. So cycles that are 35 days are greater in length. And so I would say, make sure you get a full thyroid panel, which I know you talk about all the time. <laughs> Check that. Check vitamin D level because vitamin D is so important for hormone function. Check iron status. Iron is also really important for hormones. Um, and then consequently, iron will get further depleted for people that are having excessive bleeding. And then I would say, you know, after checking all those things, and you can also, you know, check sort of just baseline estradiol and progesterone levels in serum. A lot of traditional people won't like to do that, but you may find, um, you know, a provider who's amenable to, to running those for you. And, you know, seeing do you have adequate levels of progesterone after ovulation? So that would typically in a 28-day cycle be something that you'd test between like day 17 and 21 um, to see if you have high levels of progesterone or if they're low, which can lead to breakthrough bleeding or sort of um, more symptoms, um, estrogen dominant symptoms, which would be increased moodiness or acne um, or bloating, cramping, pain, even back pain I see with high levels of estrogen are really highly correlated in the second half of the cycle. So checking those things. And then, you know, really when we talk about balancing hormones, you cannot talk about balancing hormones. And I talk about this with my young patients all the time without addressing how your digestion and gut function is. You have to be eating vegetables and fiber and even moving your body is another way to keep the bowels toned and moving and good peristalsis to excrete hormones properly. You're going to recirculate estrogen. You're going to have hormone imbalance if you're not eating plants. <laughs> and it's just not, you know, you look at most high school cafeterias and what they're serving young people to eat every day. And you'd be really hard pressed to find any fresh green vegetables. Right. <laughs> really the, the first way to intervene always, always is going to be nutrition and always going to be optimizing um, what's going into the gut and what's helping, you know, with, with, to balance all that stuff. And then the other really big thing that I see and that I wish was addressed in young girls who have, uh, you know, or, or even just women in their in college years or immediately post-college is what is going on with your stress? Because when you have elevated levels of cortisol, one of the first things that's going to be thrown off is progesterone. And you need proper levels of progesterone to balance out estrogen. And so the, I mean, it's very generalized and certainly there's, there is variance in this, but sort of the most typical presentation of hormone imbalance for younger women is estrogen dominance, which can be driven by many things, you know, gut recirculation of excess estrogen, um, estrogen exposure in the environment by way of plastics um, and other sort of toxins and, um, 
by low progesterone. And low progesterone is often driven by high levels of cortisol. So we totally normalize, especially in these early years when we're trying to be achievers in high school and then in college and pulling all-nighters and maybe using even caffeine drinks, which even further sort of disrupt and dysregulate cortisol, staying up late at night. Um, all of these things will rob and steal your progesterone stores, essentially, or at least the building blocks for progesterone. It's amazing how everything is connected. Are there any supplements that you would use to help to create more of that estrogen balance if you do see estrogen dominance? I love Vitex. I think that I, it's an incredible herb um, and it really does balance that hormone secretion and it improves the secretion of progesterone. Um, so I, I love to use that um, for young women, 1,000 milligrams daily in the morning as a way to bo boost progesterone and sort of off-put some of that excess estrogen. And then, you know, when you get into more specific sort of detoxifying herbs, I really like to have more information about um, how someone's metabolizing their estrogen and um, where exactly the problem is. I mean, a lot of people use DIM. You know, we use calcium deglucurate if we think that it's kind of a gut issue. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend using those just, just on your own because it could be a different issue and, you, you know, take, sort of take the advice of a practitioner in testing. Yeah, but it's nice to know that Vitex is safe and it's something that people can try. So much so. I also like um, the use of vitamin E. Prior to, um, you know, sort of in this, in this last seven days of a cycle, days 21 to 28, respectively, um, depending on how long your cycles are, and then through the first seven days um, of the menses or first four or five, depending, you know, if it's someone who's a heavy bleeder, and that there's good evidence that shows that the use of vitamin E decreases um, menstrual pain and dysmenorrhea. Mm, that's great. And do you think that's because it prevents the drop so quickly and it kind of eases that fall, or do you think it's more of the anti-inflammatory Probably both. Um, I think that that's, that's definitely one of the working theories. The literature will say we're not really sure why this works, <laughs> but that's, that's a working theory. And what type of vitamin E? Because there's so many different kinds, like there's the gamma and the delta, and then there's the tocopherols and the tocotrienols. What type of vitamin E and how much vitamin E is typically recommended? So any mixed tocopherols, which just sort of gives you a varied um, sources of vitamin E product would be good. And you want to use it for short term. So I usually have people use it for the 10 most symptomatic days of their cycle, both prior to their cycle and then into the first few days of their cycle and 1,000 milligrams a day in divided doses. And there's some good literature around that being great for symptom reduction with mens menses and dysmenorrhea. Emily, this has been so insightful. Um, I loved really getting into the nitty gritty of this topic and, you know, learning so much from you and, you know, thank you so much for providing all of this information. But Emily, for those who want to connect with you, want to learn more about you, where can they find you? Yeah. So they can follow me on Instagram. My handle is at holistic women's. Um, W-O-M-E-N-S-C-L-E, which is short for Cleveland. Um, that's my Instagram. And then my website is the same, holisticwomenscle.com. Um, and you can go to my website to get a free PDF download on how to balance your hormones naturally. Oh, that is great. We'll definitely post it in the show notes. Um, and everyone definitely follow Emily. I follow her on Instagram. Her account is great. You know, you just post, you know, I think you're just so real in your content, you know, and I love that. Like you're so vulnerable and you really put it out there and it's just so easy to connect with you, which is why I love you so much. Thank you. You're so sweet. I think that, you know, one of the things that we do really poorly in the medical um, industrial complex is 
we make patients and women feel like what they have to say is weird or false, or if it contradicts what we've read in the medical literature or been trained in in school, we just disregard it. And um, we find that to be so disheartening for people. And women really start to get into their head that there's something wrong with them and they must be crazy. And I have so many women sit in my office and say, I know this isn't supposed to be the thing. Or like, I know I'm not supposed to feel this. And I really believe that, number one, everything that you feel is real. Um, There's no such thing as like not possible (laughs) for you to Mm -hmm. have that experience or that side effect. And that the first step for helping someone to get better is just to validate what they're feeling and to let them know that that that's okay, that they're allowed to feel what they want to feel and that that's going to, that safety is going to set the stage for us to get better. Because once you have permission and validation for your feelings and your symptoms, then that provides us the space for healing. Absolutely. I love that. Well, thank you so much for being here and for all this information. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Ina. It was such a pleasure. As you just heard, the pill can affect so many areas of our bodies. And while there's, of course, a time and place, for many who start the pill for hormone imbalances, it is important to be aware that while it may make you feel better in the short term, it rarely fixes or balances the issue. Instead, it typically exacerbates it even further, and those symptoms are seen on the other side when the person is ready to get off the pill. For Jenny, we worked on diet and lifestyle changes to help overall inflammation and stress, which is essential for hormone balance. Then we did a Dutch test, which is a urine test for hormones, and we saw estrogen dominance, just as I suspected, as well as poor detoxification of estrogen. Her thyroid labs revealed low free hormones as well as low T3 uptake, showing us that there was too much binding of her thyroid hormones. This is very common with birth control pill use, and I see it all the time. So what was happening is that her symptoms were related to high estrogen, which is what was creating the heavy periods and the irregularity. And due to this, her binding was off, which made it so that she didn't have enough free T3 and free T4 that her cells needed, even though her TSH was totally fine. And so the low free hormones were likely contributing to the fatigue, the sleep issues, and the overall feeling off. This is actually one of the common thyroid types that I teach about in my upcoming Thyroid Mystery Solved course, which is coming in January of 2022, in just a month or so. There's actually five different thyroid types. And what is so interesting is that five different people can have very similar thyroid symptoms, but based on their thyroid type, the way we address them would be very different. Thyroid is definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach, and I can't wait to share all of this with you really soon. And with Jenny, what we did was we used calcium deglucurate and DIM, which stands for diendomethane. And those help to detoxify the estrogen and make sure that it's moving through the body and make sure that she's properly metabolizing it. We then worked on supporting her gut. First, we made sure that she was eliminating well. It's really important that we're going to the bathroom 
every day. So the things are coming out because a lot of excess estrogen comes out in the stool. So we used extra fiber. I used the paleo fiber from Designs for Health. And then we also did a little bit of a gut cleanse where we got rid of some excess bugs that she had. We used GI Microbex and Microgon, as well as digestive enzymes. And then after doing six weeks of that, we used probiotics and also my favorite probiotic drink, which is called Ars Coso. And that helps to diversify the microbiome. It has over a hundred different plants. I just love this stuff. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes. After this, we did liver support. We used N-acetylcysteine and also a product called LVGB, which stands for liver gallbladder. And that helps to support bile flow and just moving everything through the liver and helping to detoxify that way. Four months later, her periods normalized, her energy and sleep improved, and her skin started to clear up. She felt so much better, and she was able to get pregnant within six months, which was just so exciting. If you're thinking about going on the pill for other reasons, please be mindful that it will typically not fix the underlying issue, and testing to see what's going on is really key to truly balance it. If Jenny sounds like someone you know, please share this episode with them. And also, if you know someone who is thinking about going on the birth control pill because of hormone imbalances or frustrating period issues, please let them know as well. This is so important for those that are already on the pill, but also the younger women who are being put on the pill in high school or college. And many of them don't realize that there's so much that they could do to balance it naturally. So please share this with them. And as always, when it comes to your health issues, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time on Health Mysteries Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.